LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, the upside of dying. I think for many parents, certainly for me, there are few conversations more painful and memorable than the first conversations you have with your children about death. Daddy, they ask, are you going to die? Will I? What I've said in those moments is, yes, I'm going to die. You will too. Some people like your grandfather, for instance, believe that when you die, if you've been good, you go to heaven, which is a lovely place where you're reunited with everyone else who has died and where you will live forever. Do you believe that, Daddy? My son asks. No, I say, I I don't believe that. I, I think we're incredibly lucky to be alive for as long as we're here. And it's our job to make the time that we have together beautiful. Then my son asks, what happens when we die? Well, I think the experience after you're dead is probably a lot like it was before you were born. Do you remember before you were born? No. Did it hurt? No. I think it'll be about the same, so it's nothing to worry about. That's what I said to my boys, but I'm not sure I was totally honest because I'm not actually a big fan of this whole dying business. I would prefer not to die, at least not anytime soon. And I fear it, not so much the moment of death as the possibility that I will feel when the time comes that I still have unfinished business. Did I remember to bungee jump? Did I finish the novel? Will I feel that the orange that is life has been fully squeezed? On the one hand, I feel an urgency around taking advantage of the precious finite time that we have every day which drives a seriousness of purpose. On the other hand, we don't want to take it all too seriously, do we? At least not all the time. Where's the fun in that? So when I encountered a book on the Next Big Idea app called Life is Short, an appropriately brief guide to making it more meaningful, and listened to its author, Dean Rickles, a professor of history and philosophy of modern physics at the University of Sydney, distill his book into five key insights, I thought to myself, This is an interesting topic, and this guy has an interesting point of view. Let's get him on the show. So today, an appropriately brief conversation about how to make our short lives more meaningful. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Dean Rickles, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks for having me. Dean, to start things off on a light note, how do you feel personally about the prospect of your own death? That's a... A uh, fairly heavy question to start <laughs> to start my morning <laughs> off with. Thank you. 
Okay, so before writing this book, I had extreme death anxiety. Yeah. Um, sort of Woody Allen level death anxiety, which would keep me up at night. Mm. And it was always the thought of the um, the void, the nothingness, these, you know, these sort of classic death anxiety things. And in writing this book, although the initial idea of the book was not necessarily to cure any death anxiety, I did come to terms with death on writing this book, because what it does in my mind is shows how it's essential, basically, that you that you have this fairly finite uh, span of life in order to have a meaningful life. If you didn't have the have death appearing, it just it would be a meaningless sort of stagnant wasteland eventually. So I sort of came to appreciate the value of death. So this book is, you know, the title is obviously about life, but really the core of the book is about the the meaning of death or the meaning that death provides life. Well, like your former self, I'm I'm personally not a huge fan of this whole dying thing. <laughs> I, I I really uh, I'm 55 years old, Dean, and I feel like I'm just getting pretty good at the living side of the mm. equation. I remember when I was in my 20s, I was driving across the United States, and I used to love to listen to radio shows in these local towns as I drove through them. Mm-hmm. And at some point, a man came on the air and said, I'm 80 years old. I may not have long to live, but I'm not ready to leave the party. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, that's exactly how I'm going to feel. You know, I mean, I can imagine feeling that way. And so we can say that philosophically, we understand the importance of death to confer a sense of urgency and value to life. But I think there would always be this preference to sort of delay it another another decade if we have. I mean, I mean it, it does seem like 80, 90, 100 years is, is woefully inadequate. I agree. And I think I even say that, you know, I would certainly like a lot more than a 100 or 120 even. But um, it's precisely that urgency and that feeling that you don't want to go yet that makes that it's good to have that in mind. And it's good to have the thought that you may be like that in your 80s in mind so that you do the right things now, so that you don't have those uh, regrets later on, so that you don't think, why was I doing that when I was 55? Why did I not uh, figure it out when I was 55 to work on these other aspects or not work so hard or interact more with, you know, your family and these kind of things. So it's precisely that urgency that's supposed to sort of imbue your life now with meaning. So you should be taking that thought and using it now is the idea also of this book. But I agree as well. You know, how do I know what I'm going to be like when I'm 90 years old? I probably will be thinking, well, there's still quite a lot I would like to do. And it's that openness, of course, to possibilities that bothers us because we see that there's always going to be more to do, always going to be more things that you could do, more people that you could meet, more experiences that you could have because of the openness of the future. And that's that's what troubles us so much. I think we should take a step back here and, and tell listeners that your book, Life is Short, An Appropriately Brief Guide to Making It More Meaningful, is effectively a, a follow-up right, to a book that Seneca, the great philosopher wrote a couple thousand years ago titled On the Shortness of Life, an even shorter book. And it is extraordinary to read Seneca's book. The opening lines, I can't resist sharing here, the majority of mortals complain bitterly 
because we are born for a brief span of life, because even the space that we've been granted rushes by so speedily and so swiftly that all but a few find life at an end just when we were getting ready to live. To what degree do you feel that you're in conversation with Seneca in moments? Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of points at which I am in exact agreement with Seneca. And there are things that I absolutely diverge from. A lot of the disagreements come from the fact that we seem to have changed as humans. So the the audience and the people that Seneca is speaking about seem to be very different from the kind of humans we find today. For example, a lot of Seneca's examples are about people who are working too hard in terms of planning for their futures. So they've got too much future focus. They're getting ready to live. That's what that opening quote means. They're always getting ready. And then once they achieve a certain level, a certain status in their career, remember Seneca was knee deep in Roman politics. He was sort of um, Nero's teacher. And so the so people that he was around were very ambitious. And that's his audience, essentially. There are people that want to make it a certain place. And in doing that, they're not really ever settling and living because they're always getting ready for the next thing and for achieving the thing that they want to achieve. That seems quite a bit different from most people today, or certainly many people today, which is that they seem to be doing the opposite. There's not much thought about future planning. So it seems to be a, a different set of problems that Seneca is facing. So it's his solutions and what he goes into in that book tend to involve um, focusing on living in the present you know, the old-fashioned seizing the day kind of idea, rather than living provisionally. So my audience is different, so I focus on a different set of examples, including things like why we tend to be so bad at waiting for the future, and why we seem to sacrifice our future so often to the present, which, as I said, is quite opposite to Seneca. Seneca being a Stoic is also more along the lines of the idea that death is not really something to concern yourself with. Whereas in, in my book, I'm kind of saying, no, death is really, you have to keep it in mind. You have to keep it in mind precisely to keep that focus on your um, what you need to do in the present in mind and the sort of projects you need to be doing in the present. Otherwise, you feel like you're essentially immortal and can do anything. I, I was interested in your comment that if we were immortal, we would have to simulate death. That death is absolutely critical to the sense of urgency and excitement and importance that we lend to, to every minute of our lives. And, and limits, you say, are the stuff of meaning, right? This seems to be the crux of your argument, right? That we absolutely yeah. need limits. Otherwise, we would just twiddle our thumbs for a billion years. Yeah, we would stagnate. I mean, there's a few things you can say you can say on this point. I mean, one of the things I look at is what does it even mean to speak of being immortal? If you really focus deeply on how it would actually be if we were immortal, yeah. there would come a point at which we would have sort of gather up separate lives accidentally almost by the gaps between the characters that we become at one phase where we're interested in particular things and we have particular relationships. And then, you know, if you imagine 
beaming 100,000 years into the future, you would have a completely different set of memories, of interests, of relationships, of people that you're interacting with. You would be, for all practical purposes, different people. You would have, it would be almost like a transmigration of your soul into a different character, into a different embodiment. And you mentioned the, the simulation thing. I mean, I, I really do think we would be forced to pretend to go through these deaths in order to avoid, as you say, this, this uh, stagnation. And one of the examples I give, and it points to the importance of, of obstacles and the importance of not buying into this idea of a utopia in which everything is given to you and everything is joy. So this was due to a biologist called John B. Calhoun, who did these experiments where he tried to supply utopian conditions to colonies of mice. And then he obviously had a control group in which there were obstacles and there was sort of competition for resources and things like that. And the ones with the limitations, you know, did as we know that they, they do all right, because we this is the normal condition, right? Um, the ones in the utopian conditions where everything was provided for um, eventually died. They, they suffered, they dwindled in health, and they eventually actually died. And it seems to be that the, the lack of limitation, the lack of something to push up against, of evolutionary pressure, basically stops you from flourishing. There's something intuitively right about this idea that if you don't have anything to, to battle against, yeah. you, are, you are not going to flourish in some sense. And you see it, you know, with like the children, a simple example, the children of billionaires or something like that. Sure. sure. Born with a silver spoon. They often are the most depressed people and they're often suicide examples. And people outside of this who have tough lives will think, well, what on earth have they got to complain about? Why are they struggling? Well, precisely because they don't have anything to push up against, anything to push them forward to make them evolve even within a within their life into bigger and better things. So limits force decisions, you say. And I, I love this metaphor that you offer at one point in the book of treating treating your life as a marble sculpture. Mm -hmm. And you say, one selects a way the universe will be and thereby eliminates ways the universe could have been, mm -hmm. like so many fragments of marble chiseled away. There's a few things in that. I mean, so so one is this notion of irreversibility. So if you're taking this metaphor seriously, you can see that if we make the wrong decision, then we can completely alter the trajectory of our lives and other people's lives. So there's a, a, a rationality involved in trying to not make, especially big decisions, because big decisions have big consequences and then you have to take responsibility for them. So I think a lot of the desire or this business of not taking decisions can be seen as rational and we should treat it charitably, I think. But still, if you're not making big decisions, then you're not really living and you're certainly not doing this, you know, this authentic way of living that we mentioned earlier, which is precisely comes from making decisions that forge a path. You have this wonderful language you use that each decision is a kind of sacrificial offering. A sacrificial offering in the sense that every decision contains an opportunity cost, right? It's the death of another possibility. Yeah. This is a serious business, this business of decision-making. Yeah. It may seem small, right, on a daily basis, This, these small decisions about, you know, should I, should I go on the run or, 
or sit on the couch or whatever. And, and, and the, the individual decision is relatively small, but this cumulative impact is awesomely powerful. We can carve out of the present our future selves. And do you think that most people fully appreciate kind of how extraordinary this power is that they have? Uh, I mean, I, I really don't think uh, that they do. And I think it should be taught to them because, in fact, the opposite seems to be pushed in, impressed into people these days, which is that your you, your decisions don't really matter that much and you're not, you don't really have any sort of free will power. Um, you know, there's these books by um, Noah Harari um, that have come out recently. Uh, yes. Which, you know, he, he writes writes very well, but it, it's a kind of um, bleak picture of the human that gets painted there, which is that there's not really any decision-making power in humans, that they're sort of hackable, more like machines than anything. And that takes away a lot of the the power to act and sort of implement real change in the universe. And the reason why, I mean, this sort of waits to the last chapter in the book, the, the whole point is that in these decisions, as you mentioned, you're not only forging a path in your own life, because you're made of matter and you're a force that acts on the universe, you're also altering the universe in certain ways. And you're not only sacrificing possibilities of your life, you're sacrificing possibilities and things that the universe itself could have been. So you're carving the universe as you're carving yourself. And this is exactly where I think most of the, um, where a large part of the meaning of life comes from, is that you are a, a sort of a, a participator in how the universe is going to go into the future. You get to decide, even if it's in, in a small way, it's still something, there's like a huge responsibility in that you are deciding how the universe goes, because it doesn't know in the next step. It, it depends on what we decide we're going to do in certain situations. And if we're not deciding, then the universe stays in, also in this virtual kind of situation where it's not quite realizing some possibility and it doesn't know what to do. So there's huge, yeah, there's huge ramifications, even in, as you say, these the small decisions about what, you know, whether to go for a run or, or stay sitting on the couch, they still affect the, the universe. They still have an impact on what is going to happen in the universe. I started to get this sense reading this section of your book of this kind of heroic importance of my daily decisions, of all of our daily decisions, right? Like like Luke Skywalker with a lightsaber slicing away possible futures with each mm -hmm. you know, small decision about what to put in your mouth or what, what to read. Yep. I, I've loved this notion that you are that which you pay attention to. You know, mm -hmm. just the decision of, of, of in which way to direct your eyes, what to look at, what to consume, who to interact with, I mean, these little decisions we make every day, the, the cumulative power of these is extraordinary. We spend so much of our lives, as Seneca was saying, kind of frittering away time, right? You know, mm -hmm. stuck in traffic, honking the horn, you know, banging our head. I'm, I'm always amazed, like in, in airports, that there's an announcement that the flight is delayed by 20 minutes or something. And people are rolling their heads and sighing and swearing and, you know, very upset. And I'm always thinking, I mean, maybe there are a few people who are missing a wedding or something, but most people are sitting around. They have some lovely things to read. They can call loved ones. They can think, they can watch. They, 
all the things that we generally do when we get to our destination, we, we read, we think, we converse, we watch a movie. You can do all of these things in an airport, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's not like, I mean, there's this utter de desperation to get through the traffic to your destination, you know, have the plane land and get where you're going and people are exasperated. But, but really just the preciousness of this time, of all the yeah. minutes that we have. So you have an extra 20 minutes in the airport, like, Wonderful. You can, you yeah. can, you know, write a poem, right? I mean, and the other thing is, of course, that they wouldn't value that same 20 minutes in the same way in ordinary life. They would quite happily fritter away that same 20 minutes if they were at home without this sort of, you know, idea that this 20 minutes is absolutely crucial and that how dare this airport, you know, keep me here for another 20 minutes. So it's sort of not treating it the 20 minutes rationally in the sense of treating it the same at all points in the day, regardless of where you are. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. You say at one point in the book, the question is, do you want to be passive and let the world happen to you? Or do you want to be active and let you happen to the world? It's the, the difference between acting as a as an object or a subject or participator in the world. So the world will have its way with you and carry you along by natural laws and by whatever society is saying and by what other people uh, want you to do. You will be carried along if you are passive and you'll basically be like another object in the world. But you always have the possibility, even if you're in dire circumstances and you don't have much control over many things, you still have the control on how you are viewing situations in the world. And you can be an object or you can be more than a subject, um, a participator and have sort of influence in how, in how you uh, impact on the world. There's a, there's a guy I really like, an old author, Jakob Burma, who had this idea that without humans, the universe would be in a state of chaos, basically. It would be neither one thing nor the other. It takes a human to put order on the world. And they're, they're sort of 
um, Carl Jung has has a similar thing where he says we're we're a kind of second creator. We have to put the world hmm. in order and objectify it. Otherwise, it doesn't know what it what it is. So there is something truly heroic. You're right about how the the way the human is engaging with the world, and it's a really nice way of thinking about it. Like um, this, you know, this idea that you're hacking away, and you want to be hacking away the bad bits and sort of preserving the good bits. So I, yeah, I very much like that. I appreciate that. As I think you were implying, if I continue this metaphor of the the Luke Skywalker with the lightsaber of focus and attention, you know, you know, hacking away future possibilities as he or she, you know, strides through the world, that this is a more harrowing and suspenseful and challenging journey now with modern technologies. There are a lot of very sophisticated technologies and algorithms that that would like us to be objects. But then on the other hand, we've come to realize, I've, I've always loved this Bill Gates quote, most people overestimate what they can accomplish in a year and underestimate what they can accomplish in 10 years. We had um, Jane McGonigal, a futurist on the show, who spoke a lot about the importance of thinking in decades opposed to years. Um, because the power you have to influence your outcome 10 years from now is considerable. Whereas, yeah. you know, three, three months from now, six months, 12 months, it's, it's that, that can feel very frustrating. And, and so mm. adjusting properly this kind of temporal scale seems important. And you point out how critical it is that we visualize our future selves. I mean, literally like imagine very specifically where we want to be, let's say a decade from now. And some extraordinary studies of uh, using fMRI neural imaging to see the patterns of activation in the brain when people are thinking of their future selves. So, so this, this future, this ability to visualize ourselves actually, actually turns out to be extremely important. Yeah, it is. Um, as I mentioned in the book, I don't like the idea of speaking in terms of future selves, I think that's part of the problem in that automatically, if you're thinking of a future self, you're dividing yourself or separating, um, putting a separation in between what you are now and what you are in the future. You can see this in those studies that you mentioned, the fMRI studies. What happens is that when we're thinking about ourselves in the future and things happening to complete strangers, we're using the same processing systems. Hmm to deal with both. So we're viewing ourselves in the future as strangers. So it's not surprising that we don't take it as seriously as something closer to us, something nearer to us. So, you know, one of the first things you can do to sort of get a stronger connection to yourself in the future is stop thinking of it as a separate entity that you're sacrificing to. You yes, know, there's, yes. there's this idea of you have to sacrifice now for that future self. Well, no, you're you're doing things for yourself. It's just that you're not going to reap the benefit until a later time. But it's still you. It's still continuously connected with you. So yeah, yeah. Th that's one of the ways of getting getting vividness. In the same studies, um, they showed that, as you mentioned, one of the ways of also trying to create a stronger sense of connection is by really str being able to strongly visualize the future that you want. So that you're visualizing yourself in a particular condition or with a particular skill in yes. a particular kind of life. And this does transform the, uh, the processing system so that you're using something that is more associated with self-representation rather than stranger representation. Of course, it's hard to do, but it's a, it's a thing that you 
that you can practice. It's a you know visualization and these kinds of skills. It's almost like a meditation. People people do hours of meditation a day. This is a different kind mm, of meditation yeah. to feel a stronger bond to what you will be in your future. So what Bill Gates was talking about in ten years, well, you can convert yourself into a pretty much virtuoso musician in 10 years with the right kind mm. of discipline. You can't in one year. 10 years yeah. you can. So uh, the, the trick is to divide how you treat the various projects into segments. I, I do this all the time. I've always had this procedure of having separate lists, kind of things to do lists or things to be more than anything. Yeah. The future ones will be more things to be lists. Yes, yes. And so I, you know, I would like to improve my language abilities. So I have the pile. So that's the thing I have in mind is somebody who speaks a certain number of languages and can read ancient languages. There's other instruments I want to grab. So the thing I want to be, that will be sort of violinist and to add other instruments. But you have to get there somehow. So then you have to compartmentalize that, whatever it is, 10-year segment into smaller tasks that you're going to have to do. You're going to have to be able to play scales before you get to that thing. So you need to learn some of the scales. You're going to have to learn basic grammar before you get this fluency. You're going to have to, at some point, probably go to the place that you want to speak. So you, you have a, a sequence of steps that's going to differ for different people because they're going to be coming from different starting points that will take you to this nice future being that you want to be, that you are visualizing on a on a regular basis and you constantly keep it on this set of lists that you have. So this idea of a to-do list, I, I don't think works very well because it, it's always going to be a jumble. There's always going to be too much on it. But if you have this additional component of the different time scales, then I, I find that they work much better. And it's much easier to achieve the small ones if you always have that larger one in mind, this larger goal in mind. It seems to me that the question of what we visualize when we visualize our future selves is important. That it, mm. I think it's very easy for to, to just imagine, I've won an Oscar and everybody loves me <laughs> and I'm really rich, right? Or whatever. I mean, we have these sort of very vague, like, I will be rich and beautiful and popular or something, you know, yeah. uh, aspirations that people have. It seems to me that it's much more useful to, to, to be much more specific about what, yes. what, what a day looks like in 10 years. Exactly. Like, what are you, how are you spending the day? What is, what, what's the, you know, because you, you, you might accept the Oscar on the grand stage and, and, and look yeah. at all those beaming, those beaming faces and then go home to your alcoholism and your <laughs> depressive, you know, whatever. I mean, it's, it's like, that's not necessarily the, the, the life you want per se, right? And so being very specific about all the elements of what this future life feels like and what it consists of. And I, I loved your comment that, that your objective for some time has been to have a career uh, that enables you to make the decisions you would make for yourself on a daily basis if you weren't being paid at all. Like that, that was a sort of a, a criteria that you had. Yeah, and this is ex and it's exactly what you say. It's really you're absolutely right. It's really important to sort of almost be living in your mind how it would be. This is why I call it a to be list. It's like what, that would be a full being in the future that would live a certain way. So it, it's it's almost like a form of daydreaming. You know, you can't do you can't get into this phase too much. You can't just daydream. You have to also obviously achieves these small actions that get you there as well. Otherwise, you're in, again, back into virtual reality. 
but you need to be, yeah, you need to know what you're aiming for properly. It's basically just, there are a set of steps which will take you to um, this particular life, but you have to, as you say, have something very solid in mind first to know what those particular steps will have to be to get you there. You write that um, you've been known to thank your past self out loud. <laughs> thank you, young Dean, for studying physics, practicing the piano, and doing the dishes this morning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I did. But as I also say in the book, I, it was probably completely crazy, the, the level to which I used to yes. have this visualization of the, of the future. And it was, a, it was pretty brutal. It was pretty brutal. As I mentioned, I, I used to go without sleep for days and days on end on a regular basis to make sure I didn't lose some thread if I was reading or thinking about something to keep it going. I would have notes everywhere telling me to sort of keep focused on this, uh, this future and just to keep working to get there. And, and it worked, but it was not um, a very pleasurable experience, actually. It was, it was a little bit more neurotic than anything, I would say. So this gets to a great point, which is there's this fine line between being too present-focused or too future-focused. Your, your condition appears to have been highly unusual in the modern world, as, as, you've, as you've allowed. I mean, in the sense that you, you were obsessively future-focused. Yeah. And I think you actually called it future-selving. And, and you described, I think, when you were, I mean, first a very serious musician, and then as you were studying philosophy, you would, you'd put a, I picture, I'm picturing a wooden chair on a mattress <laughs> yeah. um, so that you could read your book. And it required, I guess, some element of balance. So if you started falling asleep, you, you'd fall over. I mean, you, you'd have, you'd ha it, would, it would force you to basically yeah. retain a, 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 like a, attention, which is reminiscent of Dali used to do this by holding a spoon. And if it fell into the dish, it would wake him up. Um, oh, wow. Okay. But, um, but you would make the case that both excessive present focus and excessive future focus are diseases of time, right? And we, yeah. we have to find this, this balance. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the, the secondary points of this book is that your life is a kind of balancing act between what I call these two basic archetypes, which is an overfocus on the future, on planning, or Alternatively, an overfocus on past things and dwelling on things. And then there's the poor eternus, um, which is a focus, an overfocus on the present. And you don't worry about planning or how things went in the past. You are just purely living in the moment, which is obviously seen as a, a good thing in the present context. People are often saying, just be you know, present focused and be mindful, which is, which is nice, but you need to be mindful in a way that steps back from the present and the past and the future, preferably. This is a this is a better balance. It's to be so so well balanced that you're in neither fully. You're neither in the present nor the future nor the past, but you're able to look at it from the outside. Because both of those conditions will have, if taken to extremes, are basically a kind of psychological they're a psychological problem. So I would say what I was doing was uh, had a version of a psychological problem. The, the difference is when, you, when you're doing that kind of um, behavior, you're getting short-term rewards. So you'll get, you know, for example, a very good grade for a certain project, or you will learn a piece of music very, very quickly. So you can get these small rewards as well, but you're not really ever stopping to enjoy anything or savor anything or just be. It's always plan on the next thing. 
And that's what Seneca's book is so good about, actually. Seneca's focus is exactly on this um, business of don't be quite so focused on what the next thing is and getting the next thing done so that you don't actually end up living at all. So you're constantly trying to build this future. And then what happens? You get there, you're a lot older, and you've essentially not really lived for that whole time because you were constantly you know, doing the next thing, waiting for the next thing or building the next piece. Well, I think the journey of young Dean Rickles is interesting, and maybe we can have a, a, a few minutes of therapy here, uh, because you <laughs> you started in your in your youth with this. You were classically ambitious and obsessed with with getting better, learning skills, uh, which is the sort of thing most parents are you know wish for their children, right? <laughs> but you <laughs> but you you took it to somewhat of an extreme, and that extreme, of course, has conferred benefits. You have a wonderful post as a, doing fascinating work as a as a professor, and you're director of the Sydney Center for Time, and you've you know you've accomplished quite a bit, and you get to live a life and where you're doing what you'd like to be doing anyway. So so to a large degree, those early uh, that future selving that you did as a child, as a as a teenager, as a young adult, uh, was effective and maybe had the desired outcome. But you realized at some point that this that you you were unhappy. This was not satisfying, and then you potentially oversteered in the other direction. And mm-hmm. and I, I'm only sharing this because Dean, because you put it in the book, but you make some confessions. <laughs> uh, you make confessions that you describe as terribly un-English of me, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that you that you basically, after sealing yourself up and being hyper-disciplined for what sounds like decades, uh, you went through a Don Juan period of, as a, as a single man about town and enjoying mm-hmm. uh, relationships, and you got a little bit better at present selving. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew I shouldn't have put this book, this book in the book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> now you put it out there, so we're just going to have to, this might be beneficial. And But it, it sounds like you said you had some difficulties sealing the deal after a year after your Don Juan year. So it sounds like you were having trouble committing to a life partner, yeah, dropping so I mean, a knee, as we'd say in the U.S., yeah, yeah. proposing marriage. And have you worked that out since? How, how has the journey of Dean Rickles been? In terms of sort of the depth psychology aspects of this, it's all, again, in C.G. Young's work. And the idea is if you are living too much in the opposite pole early on and you're too future focused you're going to end up with a you know a negative bank account where you've got a lot of unlived life which is then sort of calling out to be lived and this is essentially what the midlife crisis is there are people that um focus too heavily on on making life livable at some future state that they end up with a massive chunk of life that wasn't lived and then it makes itself very apparent, usually at midlife, because you sort of start thinking about things like, well, for one thing, you will achieve what you wanted to achieve usually at midlife or get there. And you're a bit more aware of death at midlife. So it kind of smacks you in the face, this unlived life. And then you end up, as you say, as I did, overcorrecting a bit and trying to live it all very, very rapidly indeed, which is what I try to do. <laughs> And um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've kind of got it under control a bit now. I'm now living together in, in, with my um, partner in a house. So I've, got, I've managed to get these things a little bit under control. I think there's not much unlived life <laughs> from that period <laughs> left. We'll see. We'll see. And, and writing this book was perhaps partly an exercise in, in thinking through 
the importance of making these uh, 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 these difficult decisions to prune your your future possibilities. Exactly. exactly. So, I mean, the the whole point was to figure out what was problematic, what things were problematic, and what sort of narcissistic elements were making themselves manifest in my life, and figuring out what the best ways were. Looking at depth psychology, not just young, but other psychologists as well. Um, I mentioned this really nice book by um, Jean Arundel, where she has this thing called the the Fortress of I, which is what a lot yeah. of future focused people tend to build. This, you know, those who are sort of who do these hacks, life hacks, they they tend to be building this thing that is absolutely invincible, the, the Fortress of I, this shiny beast that can take on anything and, and is invulnerable. And I was very much what you know one of those type people trying to work on every aspect so that it's as perfect as can be and again it's a it's a way of of not living you're not actually living you're protected behind this um this big shield this big shiny beast so it was sort of dealing with a bunch of problems also related to to this over i call it bullet bulletproofing in the in the book trying mm-hmm. to make yourself absolutely mm-hmm. bulletproof and as perfect as can possibly be and then you end up detaching yourselves from from life in that way so yeah the book was very much a, a piece of self therapy hope it transfers to people in similar conditions in similar situations i know there are lots out there in this balance between a sort of future orientation versus a present orientation you know there's obviously mindfulness has become a big a big topic and we'll we'll, we'll get to that i love your take on on this but it does seem like we want to land in a place of calm delight in this jedi knight you know decision making process and enjoying each step in the process i i, I love the um you know uh, oliver berkman's 4000 weeks was a, mm-hmm. a next big idea club winner he blurbed your book. He called it an existential slap in the face. So you must you must be familiar with 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. What a great subtitle. And he has this wonderful metaphor where he describes most people's experience of time as a conveyor belt with a series of buckets on it. And we're just trying to fill the buckets. Like, oh, oh, there's another bucket. I've got to fill it. And I have to use my morning efficiently because if I don't use it efficiently, I won't get this done. You know, And the whole world falls apart. And he kind of goes on to describe an experience of time that's that's more like a fish in water. That is, we are, we are time. We we're, we're it's the medium in which we exist, and 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 we need to just uh, enjoy the experience of time, uh, not as something that's separate from us, but there's something that's that's within us. Effectively, that's at least that that was my reading. And I think too much future obsession can land one with this sense of of, of frenetic crisis about time management. But on, on the other hand, we can give up enormous opportunities to create extraordinary futures for ourselves, maybe not one year's out, but maybe maybe 10 years out, if we don't have adequate future focus. Yeah, I mean, the, the filling the buckets analogy is completely um, uh, related to this bulletproofing idea that I mentioned, which is your, you are, it's a, a perfectionism that's behind it, really. You are trying yeah, to yeah. absolutely be machine-like in your optimization of time, which there are all these books about optimizing and doing yes. the best and fitting everything in without yeah. really focusing on the, the yeah. necessity of balancing it out also with actually enjoying the things that you're doing and enjoying the, 
the um, people right, and the lives right. that you're building. And, and leaving space for serendipity and for compelling chance. Um, it, it has always struck me about the, you know, the, the, like the power of habits has been, of course, a big theme. And, and, and some of the best-selling books of the last couple decades have been about habit formation, which I've always thought of as like uh, obviously a very powerful tool. It's almost like running algorithms it, it, through your life, right? That you, okay, well, you know, you get up, you, you run three miles, you eat the right food, you, you know. And if all that becomes completely automated, that can have great results, right? And so, so we, we do want to run some number of algorithms in terms of just habits that are automated in order to achieve these things we want to achieve. However, it's always struck me that too much habit obsession becomes a dangerous thing because you've, you've basically put your life on autopilot. You're not, you're no longer, you know, it, it's almost a somnambulant sleeping yeah, through I life, mean, even if it's hyperproductive. Yeah. I mean, it can be. I mean, one of the, I suppose the point of the habit formation idea is that in putting it on automation, you are able to free yourself from those things. So automatic tasks run automatically, just like driving a car. You can now, at the beginning when you were learning to drive a car, of course, you had to be very heavily focused on it. Now, when you're driving a car, you've been driving for 10 years, you can actually use that time more creatively and productively to think about nice things when you're driving a car, and it does it on its own. The driving happens on its own. So the idea is to get habit formation into that condition to f- to create freedom, to be more creative and enjoy situations. So it, c- it can work both ways, of course. You, you It can get obsessive yeah, because yes. you're focusing on habit formation <laughs> as as um, one of these hacks again. But once it happens, it does. Uh, these things can free you up and they become part of your everyday you know, autonomic system. It's a, it's a good reminder that we already have automated driving. We don't, maybe, maybe Elon Musk can yeah, exactly. uh, take a break. We put a lot of love into these episodes. And when I say we, I mean my producer, Caleb. And when I say love, I mean, he uses a digital scalpel to excise all of my ums and ahs, my stumbles and stammers. That's right, folks. I'm not as naturally silver-tongued as these episodes would have you believe. A lot of the time, I sound like this. So, so this, this, um, this personal, uh, I'm going to start that again. Um, I am grateful for all the work Caleb does to make me sound better. And if you are too, one way you can show that gratitude is by downloading the Next Big Idea app. There you'll find ad-free versions of this podcast, hundreds of book summaries written and read by the world's leading nonfiction authors, a new one every single day. Plus, there are masterclass-style video e-courses and exclusive conversations with our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Kane, and Daniel Pink. All of this content is beautifully edited by our entire team, and these folks, well, they like to be paid. So your support is deeply appreciated. Getting Smart Fast has never sounded so good. Search for the next big idea in your app store today. So I'm fascinated by your take on mindfulness and Buddhism and meditation, which feels to me like somewhat of a response to this kind of frenetic 
panic that so many people feel, right? About just you know filling the buckets on the conveyor belt. There's not enough time in the day. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh my gosh, I feel this sense of panic. Okay, wait, breathe. I, I'm, I'm going to meditate for ten minutes to, t- to bring myself down. Uh, but maybe we can oversteer, right? We have these. We're 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 kind of ping ponging between a kind of panicked state and a a sleeping state almost, right? How, how do you think about it? I mean, I'm quite in the book, as you say, a little bit against this idea. It's not so much that I'm against it. I'm against it as a way of living. And, you know, as I was just mentioning about these these time management books that appear, it's always presented as one or the other. It's sort of, this is how you should be living. You should be mine. You should be adopting these practices. And this is the way to do it. Rather than, I very rarely see any suggestion that it should be a balanced switching between these things. It's usually presented as a blanket statement. And in the case of the of this presentism one, of the the um present focused uh examples, it it is an escape. And sometimes an escape is, is useful if you have this frenetic life, in which case that would be a balancing to the frenetic existence. So it's it would act as a good thing. But if it's presented as a a uh, an almost sort of a universal, ubiquitous way of living, then it's not so good because you are detaching from life. And it's a little, it's kind of selfish. It's not, it doesn't really sort of help anything beyond yourself. And relative to the position I'm presenting in the book, which is about action and and, so, and selecting paths through the universe, well, this is about as virtual and non-decisive and sort of non-creating a path as it's possible to be. The idea is to detach from the world and enter a state of this mindful nothingness. And again, I, I'm not so so against this idea of stepping back from uh, the frenetic pace of life, but I would prefer to think in terms of some kind of meta-mindfulness situation where you're not only not in the um, in the future and the past, but you're not quite in the present either, and you're able to step back also from the present. So it would be a sort of permanent meta-mindfulness where you're aware of your past, present, and future, how you are distributing things in that past, present, and future. And in this way, you can watch your ego a little bit better and watch the forces that are trying to control your ego a little bit better, even than in this pure present-focused state where you're still not quite aware of the, of the awareness itself. Your contrarian take on on mindfulness is fun because it's uh, because it is so widely embraced these days. You've all know Harari, who you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had on the show recently, and as you know, he sold forty million copies of his last few books. And he <laughs> um, and he said that he never could have done it if he didn't spend like an hour a day meditating. Um, so I, I, it's it's hard not to have some respect for the capacity of. Um, the role it plays uh, in some people's lives. Yeah. I, I've had difficulty doing it for uh, maintaining the habit, but it strikes me that the objective of meditation should be much like the objective of therapy should be to make itself unnecessary. And yeah. it seems to me the objective of meditation should be to make itself unnecessary <laughs> because if what you're doing is as like Stephen Fry, the British comedian had this great riff about how meditators are aspiring to a bovine state you know, mm-hmm. and that a, a cow is entirely present in the process of chewing cud, and that yeah. and that we're aspiring to this cow-like, <laughs> you know, singularity yeah, exactly. of, of well, focus, so, which is really not 
quite as high of a of a goal as one might want to have, right? Yeah, this is why. I mean, so for Harari, he's clearly using it to balance out his otherwise very busy life. So it's a balancing. It's part of the balancing in in his case. It's not using it as a a full way of existing, as some people do. Some people, the ones that Stephen Fry is talking about, for example, it becomes their existence. You know, they may join a, a monastery, and th- that will be their existence, and then. That is very, it's a very bovine state. If you want to put it like that, you are pure, allowing the world to do what it's, what it's going to do because you're in a state of non-duality. You're not a self anymore, basically. Um, what I would prefer is probably fits something, as I said, more to what you've just said, which is that it becomes a, a habit so that your everyday existence, your everyday life, and a lot of Buddhists mention this, becomes more this state of meta-mindfulness where you're aware of being aware as much as possible. So you're aware of the forces that are, that are moving your ego, your awareness at all times. So it's, all, so it's a continuous meditative state, maybe not mindful state, but a continuous meditative state because you're not quite in the mind. You're a, a little bit outside of the mind always. I think this, this is quite a, a, a useful way of living, and there's nothing bovine about that. <laughs> Dean, with the, um, you know, there is progress apparently being made in life extension. There's a lot of a lot of uh, talk these days about the science and and the possibility of some breakthroughs and maybe adding a few decades to our lives. Would you, uh, if in the next 10, 20 years, if there's mounting evidence that, that some supplements might give you a, <laughs> a few extra decades, would you, would you be on that train? I probably would. Despite the book, a few more decades is fine because uh, I have to, you know, I want to learn the violin. <laughs> yeah, I think I mean, a couple, really, few decades, you know. The first few thousand years of immortality, I think would be great. It's mm-hmm. really, it's really when you get into the millions that you have a problem. <laughs> but a few, exactly, a few thousand years, you get get the French horn down, move on to the harmonica, you yeah. know, a, a few dozen spouses. Um, I mean, well, I mean, what? I think that you know, <laughs> okay. honey, honey, if you're, if you're if you're listening, honey, I, that was a joke. That was a joke. That only be it's one. Okay. For- she, it's okay. She'll she'll be able to do the same thing if it's yes, uh, millions yes, that's of years. True. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the you know the old Bible stories of eight hundred years or whatever it was that uh, mm. Moses and Adam were living to that sounds about right. Yeah, even uh, that, even I, that's it's kind of pushing it a bit, maybe. But yeah, something certainly more than a hundred years. Yeah, eight hundred years sounds pretty good. We had the philosopher Will McCaskill on the show, and he made the case that uh, that human consciousness is good, and more human consciousness is better. So, extending life mm-hmm. and increasing the number of humans on the planet is a net good. Controversial, obviously. There, there, there are many counter arguments, but it's. A, I, I, w- I would say not all. I would say not all life is sort of equally. Conscious. I mean, one of, one of the aims of this book is precisely to do that, mm. to increase the level of consciousness by suggesting getting a grip more on the uh, unconscious drivers so that you are literally becoming a more conscious human being. So I'm all for the basic uh, concept of increasing uh, consciousness, but then without death, if you're sort of expanding too much, then you lose the thing that is forcing you to become more conscious. And you might become a bovine right, right. <laughs> entity. I, I love that idea that we can increase consciousness without 
adding either people or years, but just just by being more conscious of our lives, which is wonderful. Um, well, you, you write, Dean, if you accept your life, you really, in the deepest sense, accept death. Which I think is a is a wonderful line, and and uh, but I hope I hope that your death and mine are are at least <laughs> many decades out, uh, and I hope we have the opportunity to to have you back on the show when you write your next book. And um, thank you for your short book about the shortness of life, uh, and thank you for taking some of your precious limited time to to be with us today. It's good. I enjoyed the chat. Thank you. And that's our show. To hear Dean summarize Life is Short in just 14 minutes and 53 seconds, head over to the Next Big Idea app and check out his book bite. Don't have the Next Big Idea app? No problem. All you have to do is go to your app store and search for Next Big Idea. Once you've got it installed, you'll have access to hundreds of book summaries written and read by the world's leading authors, a new one every day. Download it today. As you may know, The Next Big Idea is not just a podcast, it's also a newsletter. Each week, I take listeners like you behind the scenes of this show, sharing insights, takeaways, unflattering photos, and details we left on the cutting room floor. To sign up, head on over to LinkedIn and search for me, Rufus Griscom, G-R-I-S-C-O-M. There's also a link in the episode notes. Come across a book lately that you think would be great for us to talk about on this show? send an email to podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. We'd love to hear from you. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. Working with the team at the LinkedIn Podcast Network adds a lot of meaning to our short lives. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.